0: Welcome to Refire. This Time, the podcast bringing you conversations at the intersection of politics, culture and the environment. I'm your host, Javayub, and today we'll be talking to Anne Kreschmar. She's a coordinator with the state Grounded Network, which works on a global level to reduce air traffic and build a climate-just transport system. They recently published a paper entitled A Rapid and Just Transition of Aviation Shifting Towards Climate-Just Mobility, which was a big part of our conversation. As is usual with these episodes, we ended up talking about a number of things, from the social and environmental costs of airport projects to the problem behind carbon offsetting, we looked for alternatives. We talked about the issues, for example, with tackling tax exemption for aviation. We discussed how flying is already unjust. The problem of frequent flyers, the fact that it's a small percentage of the population, the global population that actually flies, etc., etc. Then we discussed Europe's lack of international booking for trains and how that's a big problem. We also discussed how trains are not necessarily the solution everywhere. For example, the Maya Train Project in Mexico is actually a big problem. And we sort of uh, delved into the wider question of asking. What kind of mobility do we need and want and how can we distribute it in a just way? Of course, we're all dealing with COVID-19. We know that COVID-19 has already uh, deeply impacted the aviation sector. So the idea is to look at how we can implement change by design rather than change by disaster. We spoke about, for example, the Green New Deal for the Gatwick region in the UK. We spoke about degrowth. We spoke about alternative tourism, the importance of intersectionality and the centrality of environmental justice and so on and so forth. So, as I said, quite a lot of things were discussed. So this is the latest in a series of uh, episodes on the topic of environmental justice. There will be more to come in the future. So that's it from me and thank you for listening. If you like what I do, please consider supporting this project with only one dollar a month on Patreon or on buymeacoffee.com and you can also do so directly on PayPal if you prefer. Patreons for monthly, PayPal is for one-offs, and Buy me Coffee has both options. And if you cannot donate, you can still support this project by sharing with your friends and leaving a review wherever you get your podcast. The music is by Torabit. Thank you.
1: I'm Anne Kretschmer. Um, I've been working with the Stay Grounded Network for around two years now. And yeah, also for the last years, I've been quite active in the climate justice movement in Germany and um also involved in the debate of degrowth for some years i've been studying economics but yeah kind of critical alternative economics so where we're trying to rethink economics and see how we can um yeah how economic science should maybe serve better for the yeah for the people not for the profits
0: so we'll start with we'll stay grounded since you like you you work with them uh how how did the initiative come about and what does it try to to achieve
1: yeah sure so um stay grounded is an international network um we have around 170 member organizations by now in um yeah in five continents and there are many members in europe like most of our members were yeah, we also have increasing, an increasing number of members in the Global South and our members are, yeah, NGOs, activist groups, grassroots, indigenous people that are resisting land grabbing for airport expansion. So a lot of different groups that have something to do with flying, mobility, airport expansions, resisting against that. And how the network came about was that in 2006, there were coordinated actions against the Corsia scheme. So, to explain that, that's the carbon offsetting and reduction scheme for international aviation. So, basically, uh, yeah, a scheme to trying to uh, offset emissions from aviation. And there was a, a resistance against that based on the idea that this is a false solution and we can't really offset emissions. And the people that organized those actions realized that there's actually not really a movement around aviation and that the problem is not addressed well, and um, there are no existing campaigns. so they started to organize and set up meetings and um, networked and yeah that was basically the initial start of this network. Um, And yeah, so that was 2016 and then it became more formal and there were some um, general principles like our th- 13 steps for um, reducing aviation and reaching a climate-just mobility were agreed on by yeah collective writing process. And the Stay Grounded Network is working on many different levels. So on the one hand, we're trying to build a movement around the topic of, um, the effects of aviation on the climate and on people um, and make that visible and shape the public discourse, bring it into the public discourse. And um, on the other hand, we try to show how everything is linked. So aviation is not the single problem, but aviation is in a way can be seen as one of the manifestations of our like economic growth capitalist system based on exploitation and extraction and everything faster and bigger and more. And showing how this is linked is one of uh, our, um, yeah, let's say goals. Um, And also, of course, we're trying to do solidarity work. So show the struggles of our members, make them visible for everyone. So um, yeah, if there is a, a group resisting airports in um, in the Maldives, we, we try to make that visible to everyone and show, okay, it's not just about noise here in the airport, but once there's an airport built here, there's an airport built on the other side of the world and that's causing problems as well.
0: So like to kind of just get into it. Um, I, I would suppose, you know, most listeners would be like me prior to reading the reports. So like, we know that aviation is a problem. We know we, we vaguely know about like emissions and of course it's a big deal. But what Stay Grounded is trying to do is not just point out the, the, this, which is like, I guess it's obvious to most people, but how does it also affect people? How does it also affect communities? What are the sort of structures that uh, prioritize the building of airports and expansions of airports? And what are like what are some ways to tackle that and and like deal uh, sorry tackle that problem heads on?
1: Okay, so first on the thing of most people know that I <laughs> I think I maybe doubted a bit because very often the problem of aviation is downplayed a lot and people are talking about ah it's just two percent of emissions. But actually, um, now, recent studies found out that it's around 6% of climate heating comes from aviation. And before COVID, we had had this massive growth in aviation. So, um, meaning that, yeah, by 2050, we could have 25% of uh, global heating actually coming from aviation. So just to show that it's a bigger problem and includes also non-CO2 effects, which is also often not mentioned. Yeah so that's just on the question of most people know so yeah it's downplayed a lot
0: maybe um, optimistic on my part <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah but but you're right there is an increasing debate on that and that's, I think it's it's quite positive um and yeah on the question of what other effects it has apart from from emissions so um i think so there are multiple factors one is of course that um, airports are often mega projects that um, uh, that come along with uh, re- replacement of people. Communities lose their the place where they live and their um, um, their acres or whatsoever. It comes along with, of course, noise pollution. But then also we have effects that are a bit, yeah, let's say. More indirect. So one thing is, uh, and they are also related to what I talked before, what I talked about before the the problem of the false green solutions and the hope in technologies, because we have, for example, um, biofuels, and then there's the there um, that seems to be like an answer on using biofuels instead of kerosene. But then with biofuels, there are a lot of other problems that come along. So first of all, it might be a concurrence to um, to food uh, when you plant crops for biofuels, that's one aspect, but it also very often comes along with land grabbing, so displacement of communities again, and the same uh, is also true for offsetting projects. So here you have um, you have the idea that we can pay like i'm i'm flying for example and um, i'm aware of the mission so i buy an offset to have some project paid to um yeah to the idea of offsetting is that you buy um, um you buy away you you buy a ticket in a way to offset your mission, but then what happens is that there are projects on the other side of the world mostly because often it's glo- people in the global north buying those offsetting um, and then projects in the global south and those projects actually often also go along with land grabbing with uh, people um, being um, not allowed to enter their local forests for example and this is very problematic because it's a kind of neo-colonialism where you think you can free yourself from the sins with just paying money and letting people on the other side of the world, yeah, offset your emissions, I don't know.
0: Yeah, and I can I can give a concrete example of that. I was looking it up while, while you were talking. Uh, I live in Switzerland and recently, I believe it was in October, Switzerland struck the f- World quote unquote world first carbon offsetting agreement with with the government of Peru. And the idea is, and I can just read out the, the write-up here, in an agreement that took two years to negotiate, Peru will get finance for sustainable development projects, while Switzerland takes credit for the emission cuts. And it's that sort of of um business in some ways that, that has I've been increasingly um concerned with. Of course, it's it's one of the legacies of the Paris Agreement, one of the limitations, many would say, of the of the Paris agreements, my previous guests uh, were presenting the social um, societal transformation scenario. Sorry, also made a critique on that point, which I will redirect to in the show notes. But yeah, so being based in Switzerland, kind of the link to my other question, um, it's a country that's pretty well connected by trains, uh, even though it's you know not always affordable. But connections between European countries aren't always the best and almost never cheaper than than planes. Um, maybe. I would. I don't want to limit our conversation only to Europe. It's just because I'm more familiar with the train system here. But what can be done to bridge that gap in your in your view? And is it merely a matter of governments subsidizing certain means of transportation over others? And uh, yeah, as I said, I'm just focusing on Europe because I'm based here. But feel free to expand uh, using other examples as well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So what uh, what Stay Grounded published recently is a report called "Degrowth of Aviation." and there we lay out different measures to reduce aviation in a just way. And we actually discuss different measures because we say this discussion is not happening. So what we have at the moment is huge tax um, exemptions for aviation. I mean, I live in Germany, so I know the numbers for Germany that we have around uh, 11 billion of uh, taxpayers' money lost every year from uh, the fact that kerosene is not taxed and there are no there's no vat uh vat on international flights so that's That's extraordinary that's really a huge sum so of course this is totally a problem and it's absolutely not understandable and unacceptable that kerosene shouldn't be taxed as other fuels uh fossil fuels are but on the other hand this is of course, not the only solution, just to tax kerosene. So in this report, we lay out different measures, and we say, okay, there's taxing of kerosene, there's taxing of bats There may be also prices on tickets, um, but there are also limits. So we have to discuss also how to limit actually flights, to put absolute limits, to put moratorias on airport expansions, because what we really don't need is more growth. We really need to to put a limit, and um, we also discussed in which ways those measures are just because with price mechanisms like, um, like a tax, you always you often have the problem that, yes, you can lower the demand with that, but it can also mean that only the well-off can fly. And that's, of course, not a just solution. So um, when we actually look at the numbers of flights, we see that in itself flying is already very in- unjust, because they're um, like, for example, only 1% of the world's population causes 50% of commercial um, aviation emissions, so that's a huge amount, it's really a small minority of frequent flyers that are responsible for the biggest share of this problem. So when we use price mechanisms that uh, actually don't affect the ones who are very well off because they don't care anyway, then that's not the solution. So one of the uh, mechanisms, uh, yeah, one of the things we suggested that we also talk about actual limits because this will solve one of the problems. Um, We also talk about uh, a frequent flyer levy, which means that taxes increase with with each flight you take. So the people that really fly very often that tax much more than others and people that, that just take a flight every other year to maybe visit their families on another country. Um, Yeah, they're taxed less. Um, And um, I think what is also important in this is that we need actually a discussion about what are necessary flights and what are not. Because in the end, um, if we limit flights, we have to talk about this, right? And this is not an easy I think it's not an easy discussion, but we need it because like for me personally, there's no reason to fly. I will, I don't miss it, I don't need it. But there might be people that have uh, um, have, had need to fly, flee from their country. And then of course they need to maybe visit their families abroad. And I, of course, I don't see a reason to forbid that or to make it extremely expensive or difficult for them. And there might be also for emergency reasons, needs to fly, but there's no need for a shopping trip to Paris. So those discussions are needed, I think. And on the other hand, we need also very practical and straightforward solutions, which is of course supporting better railway systems. In Europe, um, we have a big problem that there's no international booking. So in when you want to go from one country to another by train, you have really problems getting your train rate insured. You sometimes have to book three trains um through sh- three system, um, different systems and there are a lot of, ni- of initiatives that actually work on this like back on track or we are Nuit, the a french group or also erasmus by train a student group that tries to to bring forward the idea of going to your erasmus by train and yeah so there are initiatives working on that and some things are moving on the question of night trains But there have been a lot of mistakes in the the past decades with with really uh, destroying in a way the railway system we had. And then on the international level, um, I I would say there are also examples of of good train systems. Like in India, there's a very good train system that connects most most regions. In other countries, there are very good coach systems. But um, I think we, what we also experience uh, in the network and where we are very happy to have this variety of um, perspectives is that you always have to look at the local situation. Like for example, now one of our members in, um, in Mexico is resisting um, the Maya train that is being built there. So there we can also say not every train is good. This is a very, like the maya train is a very intrusive infrastructure project that is actually threatening the community and it's just built for mass tourism and for profit and not really for just mobility so we always look have to look at the local um, local situation and coming back to your question of um, yeah of whether this is just <laughs> a matter of government subsidizing certain means of transport over other no it is not it is also, so we do need different measures. We do need the end of those tax exemptions, but we also need the discussions about what kind of mobility do we need? What kind of mobility do we want and how can we distribute it in a just way?
0: Yeah, thank you for that. And, and for the, the, the correction as well. Um, the, the, the emphasis is on just mobility, you know, and it's sort of like the new, you um, I don't know if I would call it trend, but like it's definitely in a new awareness in the climate movement of focusing on environmental justice, on social justice issues in general. And I'll, I'll preface that question, the question I have on like if you can expand on what does just look like, like what, what are some examples of that? I'll preface it by just reading um, a bit of the paper here uh, and I'm quoting here. It cannot be an option anymore to use taxpayers money for bailing out, polluting airlines, airports and related manufacturers. Instead, recovery packages must be directly used to finance a just transition for a living wage and social protection for workers leaving the industry, restraining programs, the creation of jobs in climate safe sectors, and for fostering alternatives to flights and mass tourism. Public money must save people, not planes. So can you sort of expand from that, uh, essentially what, what, what does it really look like for those who may not be familiar?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is a quote from our recent, most recent publication, the uh, discussion paper on just transition of aviation. So here the just aspect is about what do we actually do when we transform from one sector to another? Because of course, when we demand less aviation, that means a loss of uh, a loss. it might mean a loss of jobs. And we're always confronted with this topic because in some regions, airports, Um, And airlines are um, a very, um, yeah, are are the ones giving the jobs to people. So, and there, of course, we 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 want to we don't want to work against workers. Um, So the idea, like the the demand for just transition, has been developed by trade unions and climate justice movement together, and the idea is that uh, protecting workers and communities currently depending on fossil fuel industry doesn't mean only protecting jobs, but it means also to bring forward a process that that safeguards long-term security and the future of the workers and the planet. And often we have this argument that um, we need to protect jobs and by that, Like that this is used to delay the changes needed and the idea of a just transition, we want to manage these changes effectively and fairly and democratically so a very important uh, part of this just transition, I think, is that the whole process. includes. um, A social dialogue with workers and communities at all stages so it's not something imposed from above but it's really done in dialogue and um on the other hand it must also be rapid because the longer the transition takes from the fuel based uh, industry the more unjust and difficult it will be because the effects of climate crisis won't wait and they will also be very unjust so those are the two aspects i think we need to uh, look at here um and yeah the principles so in our um um In our paper, we wrote down, um, we tried to formulate some principles um, of the Just Transition, and they are providing social protection, is the first one. And this should be in a broader context of supporting livelihoods. So not necessarily this one job, but the livelihood itself of the people, of the workers and their families, that they can meet their basic needs, also during time of unemployment, um, and that trainings are provided and the second um, principle would be promoting the creation of alternative employment so really see okay where what is the skill of that worker um, and where in which other sector could they go which other sector is available in that region or close by that could um, be yeah where the skill could be used and then also uh, an aspect is investing in, in skills development and retraining. So offer this and pay that um, people are retrained and can develop new skills. Um, one aspect would be also to hold new training and employment in aviation, because we, don't, we would say that we don't need new growth, new uh, training in aviation, but need the transition. And um, but one important part is also the global support for just transition. So look at the global scale of this aspect. So uh, that means that we need substantial financial support for global South countries from historic emitters. So that also here we have the justice aspect from the North to the South. And I think um, because maybe we didn't make that clear in the beginning that this paper or this idea is especially so important now at the moment, because we actually do have already a downscaling of aviation through COVID-19 and so that's also how we came to make this discussion paper, because we say okay. People are losing their jobs now and and we need an answer to that, we do have in the discourse um, debate we often talk about. Change by design or by disaster. And what we have now through COVID is a change by disaster. So people are actually laid off from their jobs. They uh, they lose it. They don't have a protection of their livelihood. And with this just transition paper, we say, okay, hang in here. Now we need to see how we can protect those workers, but at the same time, transition them to other sectors. Because if we don't do that, the next crisis, the climate crisis, will hit an in and um, endanger them and their livelihoods again.
0: Yeah, thanks a lot for that. Um, and it's very important because this has generally been a weakness in the climate movement in the past. And, you know, we can think of the coal miners in, in, in America. And it was at least partly, it wasn't necessarily the main thing, but it was partly one of the factors that allowed Trump to appeal to a certain segment of the population there by, you know, appealing to the return to the mines and, and that sort of thing. And I did feel even speaking recently that there hasn't really been a very vocal uh, part of the climate movement or like progressives or others who would say like we, we do there, there is a genuine concern there. there are actual people losing their jobs it's not something that can be just ignored and it is important to obviously tackle that question because if we don't tackle that question well someone else is going to tackle that question in a much worse way you, so there is an example actually we we mentioned in the pre-chat an example I think it was in Limburg, Netherlands. Can you can you mind expanding from that?
1: Um, yeah, so there there are some examples um, actually in the coal sector. We mentioned one in our transition uh, paper um, about the Netherlands, where they had a coal mine close, where they closed the coal mine and seventy thousand jobs got lost, but the government. Provided subsidies for new businesses and relocated industries from the capital to the impacted regions and provided training. So there are some uh, some examples of of that in in the sector of coal. Often, however, there it's for transitioning to gas. So I'm not sure about whether that's actually the solution. But um, maybe if we want to talk about one example, I I would really like to to give the example that um, is not implemented yet, but is an is a, yeah, um, is a, could proposition. Be a very good, mm. yeah, a, a proposition could be a very good example for um, just transition in aviation. And that's um, the idea of the Green New Deal for Gatwick. So what they did here and what actually is in a way the next step from our just transition paper to be very concrete, they did, a, um, so Gatwick is the second biggest, largest airport in, in UK, and it's very hardly hit by the COVID-19 crisis, um, with a loss of, of job losses and the highest un- unemployment rate currently. And what they did is an al- analysis of the situation and the temp- dependency of jobs in the area on the airport and see how, like, lay out how this dependency is unhealthy and also given the prospected development of the aviation sector, because we now see that even the aviation industry itself says, okay, it will take a lot of years to get back to to business as before. And then they're showing how current reactions and bailouts fail bailouts fail to protect workers and livelihoods, because what we saw in the last year was a lot of billi- a lot of money, like billions of money going to the industry and bailouts that actually didn't was not um, that actually didn't secure livelihoods and workers because it was not there were no binding conditions towards social like no binding social or environmental conditions so this report is showing how the government actually failed to do something here And then they're analyzing the existing skills in the region, acknowledging that people also feel attached to their work and the industry. And they're laying out the sectors where those skills could be used elsewhere with a concrete examples showing direct job creation potential and then giving numbers what this could cost and how it could be financed. And so they're doing this very specific for Gatwick region. And I think this is a a really great thing. And this is what we need to do in, in the region. And um, it's really gaining um, traction with the local authorities now. It's being discussed there. I mean, I don't know how promising that something really will change, but we're having conversations here about the potential implementation. And I guess that that's a really positive example. Um, And yeah, maybe another example that to me was very inspiring was, even though it was it's not directly um, got towards the, yeah, was not a direct success uh, was the Lucas plan from the Lucas Aerospace company in the UK, which in the seventies was threatened by uh, a lot of, yeah, the workers were were threatened to be uh, laid off and to defend their jobs, they proposed an alternative socially Useful applications of the uh, company's technology. So they sat together with unionists, and they said, "Okay, what can we, with our skills, produce that is socially useful, has a social benefit that actually that we actually need for our society?" And to me, this is very inspiring because here you have workers that sit there and say, "Okay, we are made redundant. Actually, nobody needs what we're producing here." So we sit together. And we think okay what can we do with our skills what does society really need and yeah so that's that's a really inspiring example for me and how this just transition should actually happen
0: a lot of the discussions that we've heard like around COVID-19 in in just in the past year or so when we say like the big symbolism of how we want things to go back to normal is a return to pre-COVID tourism essentially there's a lot of, you know, of course, the images of you know Paris being empty or London being empty, whatever, all of that. Of course, that that's shocking and dramatic. But um a lot of the discussion, even to this day, uh, I do I do agree that there's definitely some change. You know, the Green New Deal for Gatwick is a good example of how there's this this increased awareness of we can't actually go back to pre-COVID-19 numbers. This pre-normal wasn't really normal, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So I like, when we talk about tourism, for example, when we talk about, you know, British tourists always going to the to Spain or even larger, you know, British tourists always going to America or vice versa, what what have you, what are some ways of tackling that also heads on like local tourism, you know, et cetera, et cetera, because in the same way as the aviation industry or workers in the aviation industry are being impacted and will be impacted, of course, with climate change and so on, um, a lot of regions of europe of asia of so many segments of the world are dependent on tourism so what are ways of doing it not just quote unquote sustainable tourism that's not really sustainable you know the offset issues that you mentioned before and so on but maybe more actual you know palpable ways like local tourism and and so on if that makes sense
1: Mm, yeah it certainly makes sense and it's part of our I mean, it's not the focus, but for sure part of uh, this discussion paper that, of course, tourism is, um, is very strongly connected with aviation. And uh, um, yeah, and there's also a sector hit very hard by, um, by COVID 19. Mm. And, I mean, we were in state grounded. We were talking with our members about this already pre-COVID. We had, in 2019, we had a conference on the growth of aviation in Barcelona. And there we worked together with uh, a lot of local groups and movements that are actually fighting <laughs> the tourism and its effects in Barcelona. And there, I think, we, we saw very clearly how over-tourism can have so many bad effects on a uh, city and the communities living there. Absolutely. because it it's pushing the prices uh, a lot. You, people can't afford to live in their own city ma- anymore. They're living kind of in a museum. They're pushed out of, of the centers. Everything is made uh, only for tourists. The big ferries um, are destroying the um, environment um, environment of the ports. And yeah, the um, and there we we wrote some articles together with those local initiatives and actually in Barcelona we also have some positive examples of um, um, of yeah resistance against this so they started to to limit the numbers of tourists they started to put um, to limit their Airbnb. Um, um flats that could be offered and and trying in a way to give the city back to the locals and now with COVID, we have also i think in spain this discussion is going on for some time and uh, also now we had um, a statement from the union ccoo so the workers commission it's the largest trade union in spain together with environmental organizations urging for yeah, a diverse tourism that is directed more to the countryside, not only to the capital, and that's, um, that's focused to, to have tourism for people close to where they live, so that not uh, tourism of very long distances, and that is not dependent on aviation, and that is more connected with cultural and artist heritage and sustainable outdoor sports. And so this is also, to me, a very promising <laughs> uh, Teaming up of uh, unions and um, environmental movement, um, and of course globally, you this question is even bigger because you have a whole um, nations dependent, depending on on tourism, and it's not an easy question. It's of, of course also not a uh, question that you can solve immediately because you have those dependencies, and it's not a solution that has to take away the tourism for good, and then. Of course, people depend and their livelihood depend on it. But now with COVID, we see what happens when if one region or one country or people are totally dependent, like a monoculture of tourism in a way, dependent on tourism, because then it's not sustainable in a way of long, like, yeah, securing long lasting secure security. Mm -hmm. um of livelihoods and there i think we need programs that actually support countries to um to go back maybe go back or go forth to a more diverse local economy that is not dependent on foreign tourism because like that you're always dependent from other countries and i think that's um that is really difficult so one of our um Uh, one of our steps within, uh, stay grounded of our 13 steps towards uh, just uh, mobility is also um, an economy of short distances, which means that economy is, yeah, that we try to change our economy more to local economy and support that instead of being dependent on this far distance economy that we have now.
0: Yeah, it's it's, it's another example of... uh preferring change by design rather than change by 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 disaster. Yeah. Um Yeah, and
1: I think through COVID we have a lot of disaster now. You yes. see this everywhere and I think the um yeah, the challenge is really to make at least at least a little bit of design out of it and learn for it from future cri- for for further crises. And not, um, yeah, not just go back to business as usual, and then we'll have the next crisis, and the same problems will appear.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, can you please talk a bit more about uh, how the paper was? And I'm quoting here: a collective writing process by people active in the climate justice movement, workers in the aviation sector, trade unions, indigenous communities, and academics from around the world. And quote: You already mentioned this, of course. Um, I will sort of say that I have a number of indigenous groups uh, that I will be interviewing in the future, but they're not confirmed yet. So I can't plug them yet. But it is what like even that sentence alone, you know, that that intersectionality. We might say it, it's one of the signs that, uh, to me, indicates. Um, well, it indicate when I read that in the paper, it indicated that this is something that's different from some of the previous models that sort of don't look at the social aspect. You know, one of the critiques of the climate uh, movement up until fairly recently, we should say. And it's not, um, you know, the Green New Deals, the Sunrise Movement, Fridays for Futures, all of those things, those are indications of the new ways of doing things, but we still have in many, many sectors, uh, big NGOs that still apply the old way of doing things, uh, which tends to ignore local economies and local workers and so on. So can you talk a bit more about that, like that the, the intersectionality of it all and why that's so crucial? Yeah,
1: sure um yeah i think what you just mentioned is, is it's really key and it's something that the, the in my opinion the climate justice movement has really to put a strong focus on on this justice question because we will get nowhere if we just reach 1.5 degrees but in a very unjust and uh, exploitative way and there's a possibility for that. i think a lot of green solutions are leading us directly there so what we have to really really strongly put an emphasis on as climate justice movement is this justice aspect and for that we need the people affected by that and so yeah for us it was natural only to be in dialogue with workers and unions when we want to talk about just transition and um luckily we do have in our network also progressive unions like the pcs public and commercial services union in uk so um in general, I would say that in our one of the advantages of our network is that we have um, a broad range of members from very different fields. So we really do have this expertise already within our network. So when we write via our list, we have really a range of of perspectives and 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 opinions. And so we try to use that. We started with an open brainstorming with everyone who's interested, um, or Yeah, maybe going back a bit, we had the "Save People, Not Planes" campaign when the first bailout started, and we said, okay, we need to link any bailouts to social and environmental conditions. And then we actually realized, okay, no government is doing that, and we said, okay, maybe it's even not the solution. We don't need bailouts going to the industry at all. We actually need bailouts or any money going really into recovery funds or, yeah, into into rescuing livelihoods, protecting livelihoods and not planes and the industry. And so we started with this open brainstorming within our network. We had an online discussion with inputs from trade unionists, from pilots, from, ex- from an activist from the Dominican Re- Republic who brought in this, tourist, this question of tourism only also um, and how it's interconnected with aviation. Um, and, after that webinar we and the brainstorming process, um, we took in a lot a variety of literature on just transition and the first draft was made by a working group that consisted of those different people. Um, and then we had various feedback loops within the network, um, trying to take in as many opinions as possible. And yeah, I think one of uh, the things that, that was really helpful in this that were, was that we, had also, that we have uh, close contact with this group called Safe Landing. So a group of critical aviation workers, as they call themselves, the people who formerly worked in the aviation industry or even still work there. Some of them were made redundant or decided themselves they don't want to work there anymore and are now active in the climate justice. Groups or movement. And this was very important to have their input because they have the insight from the industry and can say, okay, this is where the problems lay. This is where the industry is doing greenwashing. This is where people are really um, relying on jobs. And then we had the unionist perspective, of course, that also takes into account all those, um uh, yeah, all those opinions of, of the workers. And um, one of our one, a very active member of ours is um, uh, indigenous, a group of indigenous people in Mexico, who always um, uh, contribute a lot to our publications, um, who are resisting the airport in, in Mexico Valley there, and they also input it on this question of global south perspective and um, tourism dependency on tourism and the protection of indigenous communities and their rights. So um, yeah, that's maybe how this process went. And it was also uh, a clear decision to call the thing a discussion paper, because we didn't want, and I think that's also an important aspect for the climate justice movement, not to go there with ready solutions, but we say, okay, this is what we think. And um, this is the options we see and let's discuss this now. And I think that's what is the next steps now, what needs to happen now, and what is happening, that in the different countries, I mean, it was translated into many languages, the paper, that now we start really having discussions with the local unions, with the workers, saying, okay, those are our ideas. What do you think? What do you need? What can we do together? How can we join forces? Um, Yeah, where do you see the
0: problems? Thank you for also mentioning the critical aviation workers. I didn't actually know of that term before. Um, it sort of belies, in some ways, or at least it contradicts the the narrative that we usually see that it's it's all a matter of like either we protect jobs or we save the environment, and those are the only two options usually given to us, obviously by by politicians um, and lobbies, etc., who are invested in these things. Um, Sort of related to that, on, on the website you share a I think it's called Airport Related Injustice and Resistance Map. Uh, that was very interesting for me to see. Can you can you sort of just explain what that map shows? And obviously, I will link all of this in the, in the descriptions.
1: Yeah, this is a project um, we do together with the Environmental Justice Atlas, and um, we have around the globe. Uh, a lot of new airport projects, and they often involve land acquisitions, destruction of ecosystems, displacement of people, local pollution, health issues, and more and more airports, especially in the global south, are also becoming so-called aerotropolis. So airport cities that are surrounded by commercial and industrial development, hotels, shopping cities, logistics centers, whatever you need and this is also um yeah this is then a special economic zone and coming back to the tourism question before this is exactly what we don't need for to support local economy because then you have this metropolis for the airport people fly there they go shopping and they go back and no no money is actually yeah is actually going to the country yeah. itself Mm. So, together with the Environmental Justice Atlas, we identified more than 300 airport related environmental justice conflicts in a research project and more than 70 are already mapped in in depth case studies and yeah this mapping process is collaborative. Um, some cases have been handed in by local initiatives, others have been mapped by research team, and we're currently working on a new interactive feature map on aviation, where viewers can yeah, delve even more into the, into the topics and the injustices related to aviation by activating different cartographic layers, providing country-based information or, or something like that. Um, and yeah, to us, uh, the solidarity and the publicity and press work we do as networks for communities threatened by airport and airport related projects is very important. Because, yeah, it shows this complexity of the problem. It's not only about noise or emissions, but it's about many more things. And just to give a very recent example right now, this week, uh, while we're talking, <laughs> basically, um, in via Nazaré in a small town next to Porto Alegre in Brazil, we have the German company Fraport who, uh, who is driving the eviction of the last remaining families there because they're building um, a new runway or have an extension of the runway of the local airport. So here we have an international company, company that is evicting local people, threatening their livelihoods and not giving them the rights or, yeah, that they, um, yeah, not giving them their rights, but displacing them to build an airport.
0: Yeah, thanks for that. And b- before I forget, I would also say that the, the, recent, the discussion paper you mentioned is put forward and is, is available in, in a number of languages. And I would urge listeners who are able to translate to check uh, stay-grounded.org, the link again will be in the description, to see if their language is missing and whether they can contribute to to expanding into other languages as well. Yeah, Um, that's a
1: really, that's a really great idea. We do also have uh, volunteer pools for translation because we often need translation. And we will be very happy for people sharing this discussion paper in their local context, also giving us examples of where maybe transition is going on, just transition more.
0: Awesome. so like is there anything that uh, you would like to discuss that I missed before we go on to the book section of this episode <laughs>
1: <laughs> well I mean there's probably a lot uh, that we oh, can yeah. continue to talk about uh, in this topic i yeah i I think um, we already got through a lot of the topics and um, yeah the discussion the discussion thing is really important to me let's let's discuss about that and see where are solutions how can we join forces to really transform this crisis and make something out of it go out of it um in a just way transform our society and in this case our mobility system in in a in a just way that is not um on the back of of workers and on the back of of the planet
0: absolutely so i so we're entering the book section now i'll ask you to to uh just recommend three books that you've enjoyed and that you might feel are, are you know just go for it <laughs> <laughs>
1: um yeah so i think one one book that was really inspiring to me or one author also is, is emma goldman so an i uh from the 19th, 20th century, and her book *Vision on Fire*, or which is actually a collection of her writings about the Spanish Revolution. And there, you also have this question of working, taking of workers taking over their uh, um, their companies and reorganizing themselves. So that's that's really inspiring to me. And another one is um, *Reimagined Change* from Patrick Rancourt and uh, Carl Donnan from the um, center of uh, um, strategy based. Oh, I forgot the exact name. But start based strategy, that's it. So it's about how important our narratives for um, for our uh, for our fight, for our struggles, and how we need to um, to have a vision of where we're going to. Um, yeah, and the last one is maybe actually not a book, but a very small uh, clip. It's called "Years of Repair: A Message from the Future." It's from the Intercept and the the Leap, and it's to me a very um, very inspiring and encouraging video because it shows in a way how we could rebuild our society from the ground up after we go went through all of the struggle that COVID-19 means. And it's a story of, yeah, of a lot of struggle, but also a lot of solidarity and a lot of work that actually comes from this crisis.
0: And I will say that uh, Years of Repair was partly designed by Molly Crabapple. Uh, she's a good friend of mine and she was a guest on on this podcast as well to talk about her um, well, speaking of Emma Goldman, slightly adjacent topic on like the Yiddish uh, Bundist movement at the time and that sort of thing. So I'll, I'll take advantage to, to plug that episode. It was quite fun to do. Um, well, and thanks a lot for your time. Uh, this has been, you know, a very dense and compact conversation, which I hope listeners will also agree with me. And I will do my best to include all of the links and relevant info in the usual blog post on the website and in the description. Fire These Times is made possible by supporters on Patreon. If you'd like to support through a monthly donation, you can head out to patreon.com. If you want to explore other options, you can do so by checking out the website.